Listener discretion is advised. This episode features graphic discussions of child murder and medical malpractice that may be upsetting. We advise extreme caution for listeners under 13. Bearing a child is notoriously painful, but often the aftermath of a delivery brings far more stress. A single cry could signal a deadly injury. A mere sniffle could be the first sign of a life-threatening illness. So new parents place their trust in doctors and nurses to assure them their baby is in good health. No one abused that blind faith so completely as Nurse Beverly Allitt. She preyed on helpless young patients for her own twisted gratification. She watched with cold amusement as her tiny victims suffered, only to receive praise from weeping parents. It was that admiration that Beverly craved. It was the drug that kept her killing. This is Medical Murders, a Spotify original from Parcast. Every year, thousands of medical students take the Hippocratic Oath. It boils down to do no harm, but a closer look reveals a phrase much more interesting. I must not play at God. However, some doctors break that oath. They choose to play God with their patients, deciding who lives and who dies. Each week on Medical Murders, we'll investigate these doctors, nurses, and medical professionals. We'll explore the specifics of how medical killers operate, not just on their patients, but within their own minds, examining the psychology and neurology behind heartless medical killers. I'm Alastair Murden, and I'm joined by Dr. David Kipper, MD. Hello, everyone. I'm Dr. Kipper, and I'm here to help Alistair by providing some medical insight into our final chapter of the case of Beverly Allett, the nurse you don't want to see showing up in your hospital room. You can find episodes of Medical Murders and all other Spotify originals from Parcast for free on Spotify or wherever you listen to podcasts. To stream Medical Murders for free on Spotify, just open the app and type Medical Murders in the search bar. This is our second episode on Beverly Allett, a British nurse who poisoned more than a dozen small children in her first few months on the job. Last time, we explored Beverly's forays into faking illness and injuries, then deliberately inflicting them on herself, all so people would look at her. After a series of rejections and career disappointments, Beverly began hurting young patients to secure attention from their parents. This week, we'll pick up where Beverly's rampage left off at the start of 1991 with the murders of Liam Taylor and Timothy Hardwick. Though Beverly did everything she could to evade capture, eventually, her dark impulses betrayed her. All this and more coming up. Stay with us. This episode is brought to you by Anytime Fitness. Forget dark alleys and cemeteries. For some, the gym is the scariest place of all. But it doesn't have to be. With a personalized plan and expert coaching, Anytime Fitness can help make the gym less frightening. Get more for your gym membership than machines. Get personalized support anytime, anywhere. Visit anytimefitness.com to try it for free today. Terms, conditions, and restrictions apply. See website for details. This episode is brought to you by Amazon Prime. You know Amazon Prime is not just a shipping subscription, right? It's got everything, including streaming TV and movies on Prime Video. And of course, Prime's fast, free shipping. Go from watching your favorite shows to getting your favorite things. Whatever you're into, it's on Prime. Visit Amazon.com slash Prime to get more out of whatever you're into. It feels like we're all being told to go on this diet, take that supplement. Ozempic will give you depression, but you know what'll cure that? Weed. Or you could try to balance your hormones. At Science Versus, we're like, what the f*** is going on? Forget the crap online and listen to Science Versus. Just the facts. Oh, and a bunch of stupid jokes. What is a ghost's favorite fruit? Booberries. That's Science VS.
New season out on Spotify soon. On March 5th, 1991, in the small pediatric unit of Grantham and Castephen General Hospital, 11-year-old Timothy Hardwick was struck by what some doctors thought to be a sudden heart attack. Though the young boy suffered from cerebral palsy and occasional seizures, the hospital workers didn't anticipate such a drastic turn in Timothy's health. Concerned for his life, nurses borrowed equipment from other wards while the consulting physician, Dr. Nani Akara, shoved a tube down Timothy's throat in a vain attempt to feed him oxygen. Another doctor fitted Timothy with electrodes and shocked him with violent bursts of electricity. Several feet away, a pudgy, tomboyish nurse leaned against the wall, hiding a look of excitement. Her pulse raced as she watched the scene unfold like one of her favorite medical dramas, except now she was a leading character. As far as those doctors were concerned, she was the hero who'd alerted them to Timothy's crisis. They didn't realize that only an hour earlier, she'd had a moment alone with him, a moment that would have allowed her to inject Timothy with a lethal dose of potassium chloride and possibly even insulin as well. For much of her life, Beverly faked and created illnesses in herself to attract the attention and sympathy of others. Lying about disease was something of an addiction, a pathological need that psychiatrists refer to as factitious disorder. But nothing she'd done even came close to the feelings she'd got when, at 22, Beverly killed her first patient. Not only did she get an ego boost from deceiving her co-workers, her victim's parents had treated her like a saint for her attempts to save their son. And so began a series of attacks that fueled the powerful high Beverly got from receiving adoration and sympathies. Unfortunately, like any addiction, once the drug wore off, she needed another fix. Timothy Hardwick hadn't been dead five days when 15-month-old Kaylee Desmond stopped breathing for the first time. At that point, Kaylee had been in the hospital with a chest infection for six days. The doctors put her on antibiotics, and by March 9th, she was almost better. Then, in the middle of the night, she suddenly collapsed. Though Kaylee's mother, Maggie, had taken to sleeping in the chair next to Kaylee's bed, Beverly was undeterred. In her mind, Maggie's presence in the room during the time of her daughter's peril would be the perfect alibi. Shortly after 1 a.m., Beverly tiptoed into Kaylee's room and filled a syringe with air. Then, she lifted Kaylee's right arm and injected it into her armpit, in the area of the axillary vein. The axillary vein is a large vessel located in the armpit that carries unoxygenated blood out of the arm towards the heart. From this vein, the blood passes through the lungs, where it picks up the oxygen needed to supply the heart, which can then deliver it to the rest of the body. Beverly chose this spot to inject air because she knew it was the closest and most direct route to the lungs, where it had the best chance of clogging the vessel and causing death. If she chose a vein somewhere farther from the lung, say in the leg, for example, the injected air would have a much greater chance of dissipating before causing significant damage. In medical terms, Beverly induced a venous air embolism in Kaylee, which is essentially an air bubble that acts like a clot. This bubble of air, depending on its size, can then get lodged in a pulmonary vein, preventing oxygenated blood from reaching the coronary arteries, which supply the heart's muscles, the ventricles. Without this oxygen-rich blood, the heart muscles can no longer function and the heart goes into cardiac arrest. In adults, it only takes about one half to one milliliter of air to clog a pulmonary vein and cause cardiac arrest, which isn't a lot. Considering the anatomy of a small child like Kaylee, it wouldn't take very much air at all to stop her heart. 
After giving the injection, Beverly quietly disposed of the syringe. Then she strolled to the nurse's station to create her cover story. Beverly asked one of the senior nurses, Lynn Vowles, for help with one of Kaylee's machines. While the two of them worked, Beverly suddenly exclaimed that Kaylee's face was turning blue. Nurse Vowles checked Kaylee's vitals and discovered the girl wasn't breathing. She ordered Beverly to call the crash team while she performed CPR on the child. It was a horrifying scene for Kaylee's mother to wake to as Nurse Vowles attempted to breathe life back into her daughter. Miraculously, Kaylee began breathing again. The doctors exhaled sighs of relief, then moved Kaylee to a treatment room to x-ray her chest, suspecting her infection had gotten worse. But it hadn't. Nothing could explain the seemingly sudden failure of her lungs. Worried for the baby girl, doctors instructed Beverly and another nurse to watch Kaylee. It was the worst thing they could have done. Around 4 a.m., Kaylee's mother went to the cafeteria for a coffee when Beverly saw an opportunity. Somehow, without anyone noticing, she most likely injected Kaylee with another syringe of air. The sequence of events from the first emergency repeated themselves. Bewildered, doctors and nurses did all they could to bring Kaylee back from the brink. When she was stable enough, Dr. Nana transferred her to the larger Queen's Medical Center in Nottingham. If he hadn't, Beverly almost certainly would have finished her off. Fear rippled through Ward 4. In this sleepy hospital, no one had ever seen so many pediatric emergencies in such a short period of time. But many nurses shook off Liam's, Timothy's, and Kaylee's fatal and near-fatal episodes as a tragic coincidence and went back to business as usual. For a few days, Beverly laid low. But she never missed a chance to recount the gory details to her colleagues. She seemed to love making them squirm and fed off the admiration she got for remaining calm in the face of danger. And of course, she always mentioned how she had been first at every scene. But like with her own injuries, the attention soon faded. So Beverly searched for another victim. This time, it was five-month-old Paul Crampton. Paul arrived on Ward 4 on March 20th, 1991, after his parents noticed he had trouble breathing. The two consulting physicians, Dr. Nana and Dr. Nelson Porter, reportedly disagreed about his diagnosis from the beginning. Still, after three days on March 23rd, Paul was almost back to normal. Right on cue, Beverly struck. When Paul's other caretaker, Nurse Locke, left the room, Beverly injected the infant with a near-lethal dose of insulin. When Nurse Locke returned, Beverly watched her calm expression turn to alarm as she realized Paul's health was deteriorating once more. Beverly was all too eager to chime in. He's having a hypo, Beverly said. She was referring to a hypoglycemic attack. At first, Nurse Locke didn't believe it. Given how rare it is, it's understandable that Nurse Locke wouldn't immediately assume Paul was having a hypoglycemic attack. This happens when the body's blood glucose or blood sugar drops to a dangerous level after a prolonged period of time without intervention. Beverly sent Paul into one of these hypoglycemic episodes by injecting him with a large dose of insulin. And as we've learned, insulin works by converting blood sugar to energy needed to allow the organs to work. For someone like Paul, who wasn't a diabetic, this dropped his blood glucose to a dangerously low level and nearly killed him by interfering with his vital organs' ability to function. This was also really bad considering Paul was only five months old and that his system was less equipped to deal with such a harsh assault. 
In general, these major bouts of hypoglycemia are uncommon in non-diabetics, given their systems are able to regulate their blood sugars via endocrine and metabolic compensatory mechanisms. However, hypoglycemic episodes are slightly more common in younger children as opposed to older kids and adults. This is because their hormone and sugar-regulating systems aren't as developed, which makes them more vulnerable to these adverse reactions. Given the rarity of a scenario like this and Beverly's lack of experience, her quick insight at the scene was unusual. Nevertheless, she wasn't wrong. In her initial panic, Nurse Locke didn't think anything of it. Instead, she scrambled to save the young boy, calling doctors in for assistance. Soon after Dr. Nana administered a glucose strip, Paul recovered rapidly. It was a close brush with death, but Paul had made it. Over the next few days, Paul Crampton had two more hypoglycemic attacks. Perplexed, medical professionals stabilized Paul, then transferred him to the better equipped Queen's Medical Center in Nottingham. In doing so, they'd saved his life. Still, the doctors wanted clarity on why Paul's blood sugar had crashed, so they sent a blood sample to the lab for immediate testing. Unfortunately, that sample was delayed and forgotten about. Just another link in a chain of medical errors that plagued the understaffed hospital. With Paul effectively out of reach, Beverly moved on to other patients. By now, the attacks appeared to be a compulsion, much like her injuries. She couldn't stop and didn't want to. In the early morning hours of March 30th, five-year-old Bradley Gibson suddenly stopped breathing before being brought back from the brink of death. On March 31st, it was two-year-old Yik Hung Chan who was in the ward for a fractured skull. On April 4th, she killed nine-week-old Becky Phillips with an insulin overdose. The on-call physician cautioned Becky's mother, Sue, that it might have been meningitis, a contagious condition. So she brought Becky's twin, Katie, in for precautionary observation. Naturally, Beverly offered to look after her. Katie's sister hadn't been dead a day when Katie began having her own attacks. Confused by the repeat emergency, Dr. Nana transferred the young girl to a better-equipped hospital in nearby Nottingham. What he hadn't seen was a chest X-ray that revealed cracks in Katie's ribcage. The most likely cause was that Beverly choked Katie and crushed her chest on purpose. Yet, Sue Phillips never suspected Beverly. Quite the opposite, she believed Beverly had done everything possible to look after her children and even asked Beverly to be Katie's godmother. Other parents of patients referred to Beverly as a savior and an angel. Of course, none of them knew that they were exalting their children's attacker, fueling Beverly with the drug she craved. But among the staff, the mood was different. Something terrible was afoot in Ward 4, and nurses were growing skeptical of one another. There had been too many suspicious cardiac and respiratory arrests to be written off as coincidence. But no one had all the pieces to put together. If they did, it would have led them straight to Beverly Allett. Coming up, the hospital finally reaches out to the police for help. The internet, what would we do without it? So much information, so little time. And yet, with all the answers available online, there still lie scores of deep, dark, spooky secrets. Mysteries yet to be solved until now. This isn't clickbait. This is our exclusive new podcast, Internet Urban Legends. I'm Loie, your evidence expert. And I'm Eleanor, the self-proclaimed skeptic. Together, we're the gruesome twosome, sleuths in search of the weirdest stories on the web. Every Tuesday, we investigate the internet's creepiest conundrums, covering each conspiracy theory and combing through every clue to separate hoax from haunt. Whether it's the video sure to make you lose your appetite, blank room soup, 
or Every Kid's Worst Nightmare, The Terrifying Truth Behind Disney's Deaths, or Every Parent's Worst Nightmare, Social Media's Momo Challenge. Each episode of Internet Urban Legends is chock full of disturbing details which are either truly demented or ripe for debunking. And no matter our conclusion, we're sure to be left scared half to death. So won't you join us? Follow our new Spotify original from Parcast, Internet Urban Legends. Listen free and exclusively on Spotify. This episode is brought to you by Anytime Fitness. Forget dark alleys and cemeteries. For some, the gym is the scariest place of all. But it doesn't have to be. With a personalized plan and expert coaching, Anytime Fitness can help make the gym less frightening. Get more for your gym membership than machines. Get personalized support anytime, anywhere. Visit anytimefitness.com to try it for free today. Terms, conditions, and restrictions apply. See website for details. And now, back to the story. Beverly Allett officially became an employed nurse of Grantham's Hospital Ward 4 on February 15, 1991. By the beginning of April, she had killed three children and injected around half a dozen others with near-lethal amounts of insulin, potassium, and air. Beverly had recently moved into a flat with her friend, rumored lover and fellow nurse, Tracy Jobson. After every crisis at work, Beverly came home and walked Tracy through it in gruesome detail, conveniently leaving out the fact that she was each tragedy's catalyst. Tracy thought Beverly was the unluckiest woman in the world. However, some of her colleagues thought it was more than bad luck, and the hospital was to blame. By April, one of the nurses, Sister Jean Saville, had written a letter to her boss, Moira Onions, pleading for help. Ward 4 was desperately understaffed and poorly equipped. Sometimes there was only one nurse on duty, and if a patient crashed, the nurse had to choose between getting help or staying with the child. They didn't even have their own defibrillator. It was easy to see how these conditions could have contributed to the tragic run of premature deaths. The letter raised a few alarms at the hospital, but there simply wasn't enough money to do what Sister Saville asked. Meanwhile, the unit's consultant physicians, Dr. Nana and Dr. Porter, were reportedly too busy feuding with each other over the causes of deaths to realize the single thread that connected all of them was Beverly. Instead, they went in separate directions to find answers. Dr. Nana thought there must be a simple medical explanation. On April 10th, he asked for a second post-mortem on Becky Phillips, which didn't immediately raise any red flags. On April 12th, a medical biochemist named Robert Henley telephoned Dr. Porter with shocking news. After two weeks of being delayed, Paul Crampton's blood sample had finally been tested for insulin. The normal amount of insulin in a person's blood when they haven't eaten recently is about 15 milliunits per liter. To Henley's astonishment, Paul had maxed out the machine at 500 milliunits per liter. Later tests would show his actual concentration to be 43,000. In disbelief, Henley, the biochemist, ran a second test for C-peptide. It can sometimes be hard to differentiate between natural and administered insulin, so doctors rely on the presence of C-peptide in the body. C-peptide is a short amino acid chain that gets released into the bloodstream when endogenous insulin, or insulin naturally secreted by the pancreas, is metabolized. C-peptide has no effect on blood sugar itself, but doctors are able to look for this protein to determine whether or not someone's body is producing healthy insulin levels. A normally functioning pancreas produces equal parts insulin and C-peptide. Higher low C-peptide levels can indicate problems with the pancreas, along with other health problems, so it's a very useful biomarker. Because this protein is only produced naturally, it's not present in exogenous insulin or insulin received via an injection, pump, or inhalation device. 
If Paul had lots of insulin in his blood, but almost no C-peptide, that would be a clear indication that he'd been administered exogenous insulin. Sure enough, Paul's C-peptide was low. When Dr. Porter heard this, he should have called the police immediately. Instead, he went home, afraid to formally accuse his fellow staff members of malpractice. He tried to tell himself Paul Crampton's insulin results were a laboratory error, but his inaction would cost his patients dearly. The next day, April 13th, Beverly had a few minutes alone with a two-month-old named Christopher Peasgood, but even that proved to be too much time in the presence of Nurse Allett. As Chris struggled to breathe, a doctor offered his mother a choice, keep him at Grantham or move him to Queen's Med. Unsure what to do, she asked a nurse named Claire Windsor. Nurse Windsor didn't mince words. Move him, she said. If you don't, he'll be dead before morning. Everyone could sense that Ward 4 had become a dangerous place, and right in the middle of it all was Beverly Allett. She had been present for every single attack, and some of the nurses began to speculate that she was somehow responsible. Beverly admitted it was one heck of a coincidence, and even suggested that she was somehow jinxed. But the idea was easy to write off as outlandish. It seemed preposterous that a children's nurse would take delight in killing kids. Dr. Porter puzzled over this very thought. But as more children fell ill, he finally had to face the facts. Someone was poisoning his patients. On April 19th, after hearing a lecture on the mental health disorder previously known as Munchausen syndrome by proxy at his local college, Dr. Porter called hospital staff and shared his suspicions that a nurse with this condition was poisoning patients. Beverly wasn't threatened by the potential of being caught. On April 22nd, she killed Claire Peck, an asthmatic one-year-old. Dr. Porter told Claire's parents that she died of an asthma attack, but he immediately drew her blood and sent it to the lab. The results showed astronomically high amounts of potassium, which could only have been injected. This confirmed Dr. Porter's worst suspicions. On April 29th, at the insistence of one of his colleagues, Porter went to see Grantham's hospital manager, who finally called the police on April 30th. The next day, Detective Superintendent Stuart Clifton drove up to Grantham unsure what he would find. Detective Clifton was a 25-year veteran of the Lincolnshire Police Force. He was a meticulous investigator with an astute eye for detail. He'd worked hundreds of murder cases, but this one was different. Clifton sat across from Dr. Nana, Dr. Porter, and half a dozen others from the hospital and listened quietly while the doctors bickered about the string of deaths. The two leading physicians clearly disliked each other. They argued about insulin doses and blood samples. They couldn't even agree that a crime had been committed, much less who might have done it. Detective Clifton didn't understand the medical jargon much, but as the picture became clearer, he felt the hairs on his neck stand up. If his suspicions were correct and someone at the hospital had been killing its patients, the case would be the biggest he'd ever worked. Clifton spoke with physicians at Queen's Med in Nottingham and with the pathologists at Grantham. Over and over he heard the same refrain, there were too many sick children too many deaths for it to be a coincidence. So Clifton assembled a team of several investigators and sent them off to interview the parents of every child who'd fallen ill since January. At first, he focused the investigation on Paul Crampton, where the evidence seemed strongest. 
He had his detectives trace every single person who'd had contact with Paul during his stay. Even Paul's father, David, was briefly a suspect, until they were able to show he'd been absent during one of Paul's attacks. Meanwhile, Clifton tried to eliminate other explanations, such as contaminated drugs or a bacterial infection, like Legionnaire's disease. Legionnaire's disease technically could have explained the sudden cardiac arrest in patients like Liam Taylor. The initial symptoms of this infection include headache, muscle aches, and fever that can reach up to around 104. After about two to three days, if left untreated, the symptom list can grow to include shortness of breath, nausea and vomiting, diarrhea, delirium, and a distinct cough that brings up mucus and blood. The Legionnaire's infection can sometimes spread from the lungs to the heart, which we call cardiac legionellosis. Although its occurrence is rare, this sepsis reaction leads to inflammation in the heart, causing cardiac failure and death. In this way, it's possible that death from cardiac legionellosis could be confused with potassium or insulin overdoses in the absence of testing. A potassium overdose may similarly lead to cardiac failure because overly high potassium levels cause muscle dysfunction. These high potassium levels will affect the heart's ventricles, which make the heart beat and pump the blood throughout the body. A dangerous amount of insulin can also trigger cardiac arrest due to its hazardous potential to ramp up blood pressure, which can cause the ventricles to overwork and give out. Legionnaires is fairly uncommon, but it could perhaps make sense as a cover for a murder involving induced heart failure. However, it's problematic as a scapegoat if an examiner is looking for it, because it's pretty easy to diagnose. Hospital staff tested the ventilator in Ward 4's treatment room, and it was clean of Legionnaire's disease. And none of the patient's blood samples showed signs of a bacterial infection. Clifton also interviewed the nurses, who were exhausted and suspicious of the police. They resented being accused but did their best to keep calm and carry on. After the police installed surveillance cameras on the ward, Beverly made a crack about Big Brother as if the investigation was some silly game. Even at home, Beverly joked with Tracy about the deaths. She made sure that everyone knew how strong she was in the face of tragedy. But inside, she began to panic. Beverly needed to feed her addiction, but with Detective Clifton's footsteps close on her heels, she couldn't risk it. To replace the high she got at the height of the tragedies she'd induced, Beverly reportedly turned to liquor. She'd always liked to drink, but now Tracy noticed she drank to excess. When she wasn't drinking, Beverly attempted to cover the tracks of her felonious crimes at the hospital. She knew that a record of every nurse's shift was kept in an allocation book. That information could tie her to the incidents, since she was the common link between every recent death. While no one was looking, Beverly swiped the book and took it home. Around the same time, nurses noticed that pages had been cut out of the ward notebook. Those pages included evidence of Beverly's attendance at multiple deaths-turned-crime scenes. These missing pieces of evidence didn't delay Clifton, who was meticulous with his research. There were other ways to determine who worked when. Slowly but surely, his team assembled a massive chart listing every incident and every nurse present at each. The result? was a list of approximately two dozen cardiac arrests between 14 children. Only one name appeared next to all of them. Beverly Allett. Coming up, Beverly faces a lengthy interrogation. This episode is brought to you by Amazon Prime. You know Amazon Prime is not just a shipping subscription, right? It's got everything, including streaming TV and movies on Prime Video. And of course, Prime's fast, free shipping. Go from watching your favorite shows to getting your favorite things. Whatever you're into, it's on Prime. Visit Amazon.com slash Prime to get more out of whatever you're into. And now, back to the story. 
On Tuesday, May 21, 1991, 22-year-old Beverly Allett woke with a start. It had been just over three months since her killing spree on Ward 4 began. Four children were dead, and at least nine others were injured. But she'd been sloppy. She killed too many too quickly. The cops were catching on. And now, they were at her door. When she opened it, two officers carted her off to the police station while the others searched her flat. In a bag in her closet, they found the missing allocation book and some empty syringes. It wasn't enough to accuse her of murder just yet. Instead, they held her in custody on account of a stolen key. Shortly before Beverly's arrest, Detective Superintendent Stuart Clifton learns that around the same time Beverly became a staff member on Ward 4 in February, the key to a refrigerated drug cabinet disappeared. In addition, a statistician had determined that the probability of Beverly being present for so many heart attacks was zero, unless she was the killer. Clifton knew there wasn't a lot of hard evidence, but the case was strong nonetheless. He hoped the 22-year-old nurse would crumple under questioning and confess everything, but he was sorely mistaken. Though two officers grilled Beverly for hours, Beverly stayed cool as a cucumber. She denied having anything to do with the missing key or with any of the incidents on the ward. She pretended to be forgetful, and whenever she could, she tried to pass the blame off onto somebody else. As for the allocation book, she claimed she'd only brought it home to fill it out properly. If she was nervous, she didn't show it. One of her interrogators got the distinct impression that she actually enjoyed the attention. However, as the interrogations dragged on, she became hostile and aggressive. Without enough evidence to keep her, Clifton released Beverly the next day. He was upset at himself for underestimating her, but the encounter had taught him a valuable lesson. Beverly was more cunning than she looked. But she wasn't off the hook. Clifton arranged for Beverly to go on holiday for a few weeks while he gathered more intel. It was tough going. Drug records were spotty and no one kept track of the medical waste. X-rays were missing and tissue samples were extremely disorganized, but the team trudged on. They interviewed nurses who contradicted Beverly's story about the keys and the allocation book. Lab tests linked potassium poisoning to the deaths of Claire Peck and Timothy Hardwick. By contrast, Paul Crampton and Becky Phillips had been overdosed with insulin. One such death by either cause could be an accident. Together, they pointed to murder. Word spread among the victim's parents that the police were focusing on Beverly as a suspect. Yet Becky's mother, Sue Phillips, still viewed Beverly as a guardian angel and refused to believe she could be responsible. In early June, Beverly frequently came by the Phillips house to take little Katie for walks about the neighborhood. Since the police investigation, Beverly had been trying to keep her impulses under control while the police dug into her past. But ever since she left work, she'd been bored to tears. On June 15th, she decided to manufacture some drama. That afternoon, she came round the Phillips for lunch, then took Katie for a stroll in her pram. Minutes later, she bolted inside and yelled at Sue to call a doctor. Katie was crying and turning bright red. Beverly had done it again. This time, there was no forensic evidence, but the most likely explanation is that Beverly suffocated Katie. To this day, Katie suffers from lingering brain damage. As for Sue, the incident made her a believer. The police warned her to stay away from Beverly, and she listened. By now, the press had heard that Beverly was a lead suspect. Reporters staked outside her house constantly. 
So on June 17th, Tracy invited Beverly to stay at her family's home. Tracy was still in denial about Beverly's true nature when Beverly temporarily moved in with Tracy's mum, Eileen, and brother Jonathan. And Beverly needed an outlet for her impulses. Without any alternatives, she turned her sadistic eye towards her new hosts. It began with small pranks. Money disappeared from Eileen's purse. Then the purse vanished altogether, only to reappear in Jonathan's bed. Beverly said the house was haunted. In her teenage years, she claimed to see ghosts. Now, the ghosts were back and wreaking havoc on those around her. Beverly liked to show up right when Eileen noticed something was amiss so she could savor the look of fear and confusion on Eileen's face. Like with her faked injuries, Beverly felt a need to escalate. She lit a fire in the living room and turned the oven up to maximum heat when Eileen wasn't looking. Eileen came home one day and found a kitchen knife buried in Jonathan's pillow. Another time, Beverly poisoned their dog. Eileen didn't believe in ghosts, and she soon realized who was responsible. But Beverly always denied it, and Eileen could never catch her in the act. She felt like a prisoner in her own house whose cellmate was out to kill her. She wasn't entirely wrong, although it wasn't Eileen who Beverly was apparently after. Ever since Beverly arrived, Tracy's brother Jonathan had been getting sicker. He had dizzy spells and shooting pains in his legs. He'd also developed a sudden addiction to chocolate. Sudden cravings for sweets, like chocolate, can be the result of having low blood sugar. The reason for this, Alistair, is that sugar is the body's primary source of fuel. And we've learned that insulin draws glucose out of the blood in order to convert it to energy. And so we need adequate glucose levels in order to supply our tissues and organs with the energy needed to function. This is especially true for our brains, which governs the proper functioning of our other vital organs. In a healthy young man like Jonathan, with no family history of type 1 diabetes, the most likely explanation is that he was given some kind of medication that caused an increase in his insulin levels. It's probable that he was secretly being fed some medication used for treating diabetes and was in a constant battle with hypoglycemia. Indeed, he was. Investigators believe that Beverly had secretly administered him glybenclamide, a compound given to diabetics to boost their insulin levels. Unbeknownst to Jonathan, Beverly had allegedly swiped a number of pills from Eileen's mother and slipped them into his daily hot chocolate. One summer afternoon, she gave Jonathan a lace drink that nearly sent him into a coma. The doctors said he'd fainted, but Eileen knew the truth. The police had no knowledge of this incident, nor of Eileen's supposed poltergeist. What they did have was a steadily increasing pile of circumstantial evidence. Wherever Beverly Allett went, there was fire, but still no smoking gun. They wanted to bring Beverly in for more questioning in late July, but she was in hospital for a bladder infection. Apparently, tormenting Eileen and Jonathan wasn't enough for Beverly. Her factitious disorder appeared to be back, and it's suspected that she began injuring herself again. The interview was rescheduled twice because of a growing list of new medical problems. Finally, on September 3rd, Detective Inspector Neil Jones arrested Beverly for the murder of Becky Phillips. Although it wouldn't be enough to win a trial, the police hoped to use their evidence to force a confession out of Beverly. But this time, under guidance from her lawyer, she answered no comment to nearly every question. She was released on bail eight hours later. Back at home, Tracy's mum, Eileen, grew frantic. She firmly believed that Beverly had killed those children and poisoned her son and worried that she or her children might be killed next. Somehow, 
Eileen convinced Beverly to leave the house to see if the ghost that Beverly blamed would go away. As she expected, it did. But now, her daughter Tracy was back in her old apartment, alone with Beverly. However, Tracy was finally armed with her own suspicions about her girlfriend. And the wedge between them only deepened as Beverly tried to turn Tracy against her mother, going so far as to blame all of the strange occurrences at the house on Eileen. Tracy knew it was a lie. The argument escalated into a fistfight when Tracy finally accused Beverly of murdering the children on Ward 4. Beverly denied it and threatened suicide. Two weeks later, Tracy went to the police and told them what her own family had experienced at the hands of Beverly. It was the final nail in the coffin. On the evening of November 20th, 1991, Detective Clifton called Beverly's defense lawyer and told him to bring his client in. The next day, Beverly passed through a wall of journalists and angry spectators on her way to court. As the cameras flashed, she couldn't help but grin. This show was all about her, even if she was the villain. As an evident danger to society, Beverly would have to wait in prison for her trial to begin. During that time, her old habits came roaring back. She regularly injured herself and spent an inordinate amount of time in the prison's medical center. In June 1992, she also developed anorexia, losing over 55 pounds. Anorexia nervosa is a mental health condition whereby the patient refuses to eat or eats very little. It's commonly associated with factitious disorder and can often be comorbid. It may be viewed as a cry for attention and a way to inflict self-harm. However, it can exist in its own domain too, tied to things like psychological trauma or body dysmorphic disorder, where people have unhealthy or skewed perceptions about their bodies. The dangers of losing so much weight in a short period of time involve a loss of vital minerals and proteins that keep the body strong and working properly. Without adequate fuel, tissues and organs can become compromised, muscles can start to deteriorate, and bones may begin to weaken. Not eating, or barely eating, also causes our adrenal glands to compensate by dumping cortisol into our system, which promotes glucose release from glycogen stored in the liver. This ongoing chemical stress response can lead to high blood pressure, arrhythmias, and even heart failure in severe cases. It's unclear if Beverly's anorexia was part of her factitious disorder, but it did bring her renewed attention. If gaining attention was her goal, it worked like a charm. The jail doctor couldn't help Beverly, so her judge transferred her to a secure psychiatric facility. There, she enjoyed a private room, better food, and a new audience for her wild stories. Finally, on February 15th, 1993, two years to the day after she started on Ward 4, her trial began. Reporters and family members crowded the benches and craned to get a look at Beverly. She stared straight ahead, betraying no emotion. Beverly refused to make eye contact with the parents of her victims as they made their way to the stand. One by one, they recounted the horrors they endured. Scientific experts testified about the effects of insulin and pathologists explained cracked ribs and puncture marks found on the bodies. It was a full, quiet crescendo of damning testimony. Like many serial killers, Beverly targeted society's most vulnerable. Her willingness to kill sick children and ruin loving families, all in the pursuit of attention, is wildly mind-bending. Her case represents an interesting example of how someone's need for validation can turn murderous. Although her killings resulted from the progression of her mental illness, the one constant in Beverly's life was an underlying streak of self-sabotage. Her fabrications and disturbing behaviors always seemed incredibly risky to her own safety and reputation, but in her mind, these gambles were outweighed by a twisted longing. 
Even while under police investigation, she couldn't resist the urge to create devastating theatrics in her own life, as we saw in her stunts with Katie Phillips and Tracy's family. Her story, once again, demonstrates how hiring practices at hospitals need to be taken very seriously. It often only takes one bad apple to ruin the bunch in a medical facility, which is a frightening notion. There's some comfort, though, in knowing that Beverly Allett was finally exposed and caught. On May 11th, the jury retired. For two days, everyone waited with bated breath. Beverly was back in hospital when the telephone rang. The jury had reached their first verdicts. Guilty. The judge eventually sentenced Beverly to 13 concurrent life sentences for the murder, attempted murder, and grievous bodily harm inflicted on her victims. It was the most severe sentence ever given to a British woman at that time. However, in 2007, an appeals court changed the conditions of her sentencing. In 2021, the 52-year-old former nurse will be eligible for parole. If she is released, one can't help but wonder who her next victim will be. Thanks for listening to Medical Murders, and thanks again to Dr. Kipper for joining me today. Thank you, Alistair. For more information on Beverly Allett, among the many sources we used, we found the books Murder on Ward 4 by Nick Davies and Angel of Death, Killer Nurse Beverly Allett by John Askill and Martin Sharp to be extremely helpful to our research. You can find all episodes of Medical Murders and all other Spotify originals from Parcast for free on Spotify. Not only does Spotify already have all of your favorite music, but now Spotify is making it easy for you to enjoy all of your favorite Spotify originals from Parcast, like Medical Murders, for free from your phone, desktop, or smart speaker. To stream Medical Murders on Spotify, just open the app and type Medical Murders in the search bar. We'll see you next time. Medical Murders is a Spotify original from Parcast. It is executive produced by Max Cutler, sound designed by Nick Johnson, with production assistance by Ron Shapiro, Carly Madden, Kristen Acevedo, Jonathan Cohen, Alexandra Trikvedotir, and Bruce Katovich. This episode of Medical Murders was written by Xander Bernstein, with writing assistance by Maggie Admire, fact-checking by Bennett Logan, and research by Chelsea Wood. Medical Murders stars Dr. David Kipper and Alastair Murden. 